Let's open our Bibles to Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. We're there again, and uh, I was reflecting on the fact that when I started Matthew, I didn't all the way count the cost for what kind of sized book this is. It's massive. I'm, I'm just starting to get some speed in, uh, in the flow of exposition, but it's so important to slow down and see what's there and why God has us where we are in the text that we find ourselves in, because there are particular topics and themes that hit within the providence of God that we need to pay attention to. And right now, we're going to go into a text where Jesus is accused of being a Satanist. He's going to be accused of, by the Pharisees, of performing a miracle by the power of Satan. One of the greatest dangers of being alive is to underestimate the power of Satan. What he does, what his agenda is to do in the lives of everyone here, he seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. We need to understand and recognize what kind of accusation this was to wage against Christ because we also, on the flip side, need to not commit a second error. Not only should we never underestimate Satan, but we should never underestimate the Lord Jesus Christ, his dominance, his power, his glory, his deity. He is the ruler of all things. This is an egregious accusation that we're going to read about that was waged against the Lord Jesus. He's been accused of being a nonconformist, kind of a generic accusation. He's been accused by the Pharisees as being a rebel, somebody who's flying in the face of the law on the Sabbath. He's accused of being a pagan, sort of indirectly, as someone who goes out with the Gentiles, who connects with the pagans. And now they're really going dark and deep with this accusation to say, Jesus, you're of the devil. You're a Satanist. It's a level of hardness of heart that the Pharisees stooped to having, but it's something that I want to warn all of us away from. Satanism is a real religion. I guess we kind of hear about it. I wouldn't recommend researching it. I don't really read on it or read in it to find out what's there, but I know people are into dark occultic things, and and they commune around a dark Bible, a satanic Bible, with messages to hate, to steal, kill, and destroy. It's overt Satanism. It's loyalties to Satan. People are empowered by the devil, and they are pledged to his hatred. But this is something that I'm going to say now that you might recoil from. It's a little different than joining the occult. It's a reality that the Bible teaches that everyone is either in one kingdom or another. That everything is really binary in this world. You are either under the kingdom of Christ or you are under the prince of the power of the air. You are under the kingdom of darkness. To be saved is to be transferred. It's the ultimate transfer out of one kingdom into another. But until you are in Christ, you are in Satan's kingdom. It's one or the other. He's called the prince of the power of the air, the prince of darkness. 
He is what Revelation touts as the great Babylon. He's the mistress. He's the, the harlot that is drawing the world to himself. His greatest mission is to take the widest amount of people to hell with him. Down a path to destruction. He is powerful and not someone to be underestimated. He's called the angel of light in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The angel of light. He's duping people. He's blinding the minds of every single unbeliever. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He wields false doctrines. Doctrines of demons. He's the liar of liars. He lied to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, really, in essence, is they, they, they were in paradise. They were told, don't eat of this tree, the good of tree of the knowledge of evil. Don't eat of that or you're going to die. And so Satan, the serpent, comes in and dupes them. And the world was cursed. The world was broken and wouldn't be reconciled at least at point in time and space 2,000 years ago when Christ crushed the serpent's head. That was the reconciliation that ultimately we will enjoy with the new heavens and the new earth where paradise is rebuilt and regained. Paradise was lost because Adam and Eve became the first Satan worshipers. I hate to say it that way, but it's dramatic. They were worshiping the devil. They were attributing worth and value to what the devil was lying to them about. That's what it means. When, the, when people live for Satan's world, they are attributing worth to Satan. And they are, in essence, Satan worshipers. This was the offer that was given in the second temptation series. So the first series is in the Garden of Eden, where, Satan, where Adam and Eve fell to the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. The second wilderness, some 4,000 years later, you have Christ in the wilderness anointed by the Holy Spirit, and Satan is saying, listen, will you but bow to me, and I will give you everything, all the kingdoms of the world. And I believe it was a legitimate offer. I think it was as legitimate as the offer that was given to Adam and Eve. The offer was, as Genesis 3 says, just that first offer, the serpent was more crafty than the other beast of the field. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree of fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Here, listen to what the serpent said. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What happened? They ate of the forbidden fruit, and they, did they die right away? No. Satan's lie is also a partial truth. This is how he schemes. That's how he works. They, they kind of knew intuitively. They weren't going to immediately drop dead, and they didn't. Also, their eyes were opened. They were aware suddenly, just like God is, of the big picture. That's what happened. They were able to discern the difference between good and evil. They were obviously unaware of evil at that point, but they're saying, oh, here is the moral divide, and now we are the wiser. But 
by making that exchange, exchanging paradise and fellowship with the Lord for bowing to Satan and becoming Satan worshipers, in that moment at least, by doing so, they relinquished um, the freedom and joy of fellowship with the Lord and they plunged the world into a cursed state. Everything that's hard in your life is because of that sin. So was it a legitimate offer 4,000 years later for Satan, Satan offering the kingdoms of the world to Jesus? What would have happened with that despicable trade? Well, had the Lord Jesus bowed to Satan, he would have relinquished the power of the Holy Spirit for the power of Satan. He would have made a trade. He would have relinquished his Messiahship. He would have relinquished his title as Savior. He would have relinquished his opportunity to save us from our sins. Praise God. Glory and hallelujah. That though Adam and Eve fell, the second Adam rose victorious, did not fall, did not make that despicable trade It's a legitimate temptation that he did not fall to. I say all that to say, let's not be duped by Satan. He caused a third of the angels to fall when he fell. Myriads and myriads, ten thousands upon ten thousands, an uncountable number of angels followed Satan out of heaven to their doom. At the end of the millennial reign, just giving a sort of a theology of Satan. He's going to create, Revelation chapter 20 talks about, and 21 talks about an insurrection that he's going to um, lead at the end of the millennial kingdom. And ultimately, he'll be destroyed. But we need to understand that Satan wants to neutralize us. Though we are sealed from Satan by the Holy Spirit, we're still called by Scripture to be on the alert. Peter tells tells us to be on the alert of the roaring lion who seeks someone to what? Devour. He wants to eviscerate your life. He wants to neutralize your life. He wants to sideline you in a wounded, bruised conscience. He wants to take you and sift you like wheat, like Peter was with his three public denials. Those saved, though he would be restored, he was sidelined by Satan. We need to exercise the armor of God. Wield the shield of faith, extinguishing the fiery darts that come to us. Partial truths that have damnable consequences. I think we need to understand that Satan's a formidable foe and even put up against Christ who is indomitable. He is the one who is going to dominate Satan every time. Even in that moment, that test was not a bogus test. It was not pro forma. It was powerful. We need to learn how Jesus waged war against the devil. We need to stand with truth so we are not disqualified in ministry. Let's not believe ourselves exempt from this kind of hardness of heart. But I think what I'm trying to open our eyes to is that the stakes are high with a text like this. This is a text that is talking about Pharisees who are moving from one stage of hardness where they're accusing Jesus of being a Satanist to basically ignoring his accountability. They're going to deny his accountability. And then thirdly, they're ultimately going to move from being this accusing, divisive, denying to ultimately letting themselves go, damning themselves into hell. They are coming under what is called, um, it's the road of perdition. It's the, the sin of Judas Iscariot. It's the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin. What is the unpardonable sin? 
It's a question we should all ask ourselves. You say, that has nothing to do with me. I'm not a Pharisee. I'm not encountering Christ like they did. I'm signed, sealed, and delivered, so I can just kind of lay back and go on autopilot and cruise control. Well, what in the world is James saying when he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you? What, what is a warning like Hebrews 6 that says, don't just let yourself go because you might find yourself beyond the ability to be forgiven of your sins. We're going to look at all of that over the next couple of weeks, but it's important to understand that none of us are exempt from a warning of the impardonable sin. None of us are. How do you hold the truth that we are saved and once saved and always saved? And I believe that. Once you are saved, you are a son or a daughter in the kingdom of God. You can't, you can't be swapped into the other place. But at the same time, what do we do with passages where people are just like Judas Iscariot? They think they're safe. They think they're fine. But they're living duplicitous lives. And they're on the wide road following Satan. They're, they're following Satan to hell. How do we wake people up? Or perhaps you need to be awakened to say, oh, I'm not yet saved. And that's the warning of the unpardonable sin. It's really the warning for all of anyone who is outside of the kingdom of Christ. You don't want to one day find yourself standing before the Lord. Matthew 7 says, many will say, many will say, let's say it together. Many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I cast out demons? Didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I do all these things? And he will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. I want to be that person, blinded, like the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the, the governors of the law of God. And they're making this accusation. They're so sure in their minds that Jesus is of the devil when he was standing there as the saving Messiah. An accusation that was damnable. We need to learn about how they went from one step to the next to committing the unpardonable sin. This is not a minimalist position. This isn't to dispensationalize the Pharisees and say, well, that could happen to them because that's in the Gospels, but we're in the New Testament part of Acts to Revelation. So we're safe here. We don't get a get out of jail free card. We need to learn from this text and do what they do what they did not what don't do what they did do. We need to we need to resist the Pharisaical way, the Pharisee's path. Um, this is the doctrine of reprobation where God will let certain people go in this lifetime because they, they go so hard in their, this lifetime that God eventually lifts his hand in reprobation and says, well, I'm going to give you over into hell. You say, that's cruel and horrible. Well, that happens to some in this life, but it happens to everyone else who's not in Christ where they go into hell. It is the doctrine of reprobation. So the Pharisees, they're taking steps towards committing the unpardonable sin. Step one, they make the accusation that that Jesus is a Satanist. Step one, it's by leading others astray. They're dividing people from Christ. This is verses 22 to 24. Listen as I read. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. 
We begin with the compassion of Christ. There's a revival. There's a man who is blind, who is deaf and probably mute. He's unable to hear and probably because of tone deafness, unable to speak. A blind, mute. The word mute can be deaf and and mute. Um, So you have these multidimensional things happening inside this man's life that has rendered him incapacitated. He's also demon oppressed. So this man is unable to get himself to Jesus, but people brought him to Jesus. He was brought to Jesus. Incapacitated, but people loved him enough. Demon possessed. He's, he's blind. He can't see. He's unable to speak. He's unable to ask people for help. Probably can't even hear. And he's brought to Jesus, and Jesus, the no respecter of persons, um, impartially heals this man, heals him, heals him of the demonic oppression, heals him of his congenital disease, his problems, not a, not a partial healing, comprehensive, immediate, not a controversial healing, by the way. I mean, the crowds we're going to see are astounded. They're amazed. Nobody's doubting that power just came from Jesus' hand. Not even the Pharisees who are desperate to rescue the crowds from bowing to Jesus. They know that power has happened, so that's not the controversy. The controversy that they want to build is the source of the power. They want to impugn the source, not the reality of the power of Christ. The power of Christ has been put on absolute display. The severe condition has been solved. He spoke and he saw. Here's a side question. Did the demon oppression cause the man to be blind and mute? A lot of there's wholesale ministries that are casting out the demons of depression, the demons of sickness, the demons of cancer, the de- You've heard it, right? I mean, so they will take a text like this and build a whole denomination and movement around exorcism. We're exercising things. It's a, it's a ministry of exorcism. That sounds a little bit haunting, doesn't it? But that's where false teaching, false doctrine and doctrines of demons takes you. Ministries, wholesale ministries of exorcism and exorcist. But it does say he healed the man and he healed the man of the demon oppression and he healed the man of the congenital condition. So what do you do with that? Well, every body that's broken down like this and everyone who is exposed to a demon on this scale is a product of a fallen world that all began with Satan's um, infusion of doubts into Adam and Eve. Satan's temptations brought, um, brought us to a world because Adam and Eve fell. The sinfulness of sin is in our world and the fallout from the sinfulness of sin in our world is there is dying, there is crying, there is sickness, there is temptation and there are demons. That is our world that we live in. The God of this world is doing that. There's a lot of masquerading and a lot of sort of window dressing to try to cover that up like it's not real, but people are hurting inside because of those realities. When Jesus shows up, he brings heaven to earth. He's communicating who he is as an offer, as the one who can redeem you out of the fallenness of this world. What is, what is heaven promise? Heaven promises us, that there'll be no more dying, no more death, no more crying, and guess what? No more demons are cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, 
for the former things have passed away. This is when, when you see the grouping of congenital disease and demonic oppression. These, this is the grouping of the fallen world that we live in. But you say Jesus healed and the demon went away. Well, it's true. It's true. There, there are bodily dimensions with what demons do to people. I believe greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, that nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So if you are in Christ, I don't believe a demon can inhabit you. I definitely believe that. There's a lot that we don't know. There's a lot that's going on in the unseen world. Ephesians 6 is very clear that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities. So there are demonic dynamics going on, and I don't want you to underestimate those. But at the same time, I want you to find confidence and strength for the fact that we are in Christ. I've told you that I've spoken to someone here that I thought was very much demon-possessed, and I didn't know if she was going to attack me or not. Um, thank heavens for the secretarial staff that came to my aid. <laughs> anyway, but people, people gathered around and it was like, it was really tense. But, um, but you know, the, the demon that inhabited the boy who I don't believe was converted, he was doing suicidal things, throwing himself into the fire and the water. You have the demoniacs that were thrashing themselves against the rocks. You have Job who was permitted under the dominion and sovereignty of God to touch the body. You, you have uh, Satan who was permitted to touch Job with loathsome sores, soul to foot. I mean, soul of foot to the crown of the head, Job 2, 6 through 7. So you do have some cause and effect dynamics with physical dimensions. Matthew 9, 32 and 34 earlier, um, it says that the mute man spoke when Jesus healed him. So, you know, thin slicing all of this is probably not, not helpful but I don't believe it's, it's warrant to build whole ministries around exorcism. That's my point. Those ministries are missing the issue of repentance and saving faith. If you want to discern what's really going on with those ministries, ask yourself, when am I hearing sermons about repenting of sins and being delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, saved from sin? That's the issue. That's Jesus' message, and that's the event. The revival leads to a reaction. What, is, what are the crowd's reaction? It says, all the people were amazed. Stop there. Amaze. Amazement does not save anyone. Inspiration, being inspired by a fireworks show or a magic show or going to a pro event or a great speaker or blah, 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 none of that is salvation. Emotional stirring is not salvation. Salvation is by grace where he regenerates a heart. And so this crowd was then asking themselves the question, and I'm not judging the crowd per se. Um, They might be fickle in their faith, but they're sitting there going, can this carpenter's son be the son of David? Is this the Messiah? We're not doubting that power happened. We're not doubting that this man was made whole. We're just questioning whether or not he's the Messiah. And the answer to that question is the difference between being born again or not. How you answer that question. It's a dividing line. And it's so powerful. And the crowd was so vulnerable in that moment that the Pharisees just glom onto that moment and say, oh, don't bow to Jesus. Don't follow him. We get that something just powerful happened and it came from him. But don't say that that's God or he's Messiah. He's of the devil. They want to intercept. So there's the reaction from the crowd. And they're amazed. And then there's a a redirection, an intervention that the Pharisees undertake. And that's verse 24. It says, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, 
It is only by Beelzebul. It's only. They're conclusive in their minds. It is only by Satan, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Beelzebul. Beelzebul. It's a synonym for Satan. It means Lord of the flies or an ancient um, sort of commentary, Lord of dung. It's the idea of he's, he's the Lord over darkness. Jesus is under the, the power and under the spell of the devil. He's, he's cursed by Satan and he's, he's empowered by him. And so you want to stay away from him. It's as if he's hovering over the flies and the dung and death and darkness. In 2 Kings 1 and 2, you have this title, Beelzebub. That's where this comes from. It was a reference to a changing of the guard in the northern kingdom of Israel. It says, after the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now, um, Azahiah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. Now, Azahiah should have said, I want you to inquire of Yahweh to save me because I'm in this perilous situation. His health was bad. He needed a savior. Instead of going to God, he went to the devil. Again, binary. It's you're, you're choosing one or the other. Beelzebub. Uh, this is uh, from Ekron. This is a, a false god of Ekron, one of five Philistine cities that were all grouped next to each other, kind of in the central area on your Bible maps in Jerusalem. And one of the five um, Philistine cities is the city of Gath. That's where Goliath is known to come from as a giant. Gath is uh, a place that could be connected all the way historically back to the land of Canaan, which was filled with giants. And so you have this sort of giant-dominated land. You have Ekron. You have this Philistine pagan land where this guy is looking for help. That's what he's doing. That's, that's, how, that's the association that the Pharisees are making with Jesus. That's where he comes from. That's his power source. He's of the giants. He's of the land of the Philistines. He's of the land of the pagans. He's Beelzebul, the Lord of the flies. He is evil. Run from that power source. It's scary to think what people will do to divide people from Jesus. Why do people divide people from Jesus? It's ultimately because they don't want to be accountable to Jesus. They don't want you to be accountable to Jesus. They want to all have a darkness party themselves. The irony is they're saying, run from Jesus. He's with the devil. And by running from Jesus, they're saying, we are with the devil. Think about that. That's what the Pharisees are up to. Had Jesus yielded to Satan's offer, just back to that, again, he would have relinquished his true power. This man was freed from a demon that was showing that he was, that Jesus was all-powerful. Anyone who is of the devil is always trying to do what the Pharisees were doing, by the way. It's division. You know, it's the 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of this, I'm of Cephas. And Paul said, I'm glad I didn't baptize any single one of you so that you couldn't make some sort of weird superficial alignment with me and divide the church. Church division is satanic. Satan's always trying to implode the church from the inside out. He wants to divide, not 
to unify. Acts chapter 20, Paul said to the elders, he said, After my departure, fierce wolves will come in, in among you, not sparing the flock, but from among your own selves, men will arise speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. They'll twist truth. They'll, they'll elevate themselves. They'll say, look, if you're with me, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. You can do this. You can't do that. All the legalism, yeah, up, 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 to divide the church. It's lies. Well, the first step towards the unpardonable sin is to, is to deny, is to lead others astray. And then second is to live in denial. So you want to divide people from Christ, and then secondly, you live in denial, denying Christ's witness. You want to deny Christ's witness. Now, this point is I'm making under under this idea. So the Pharisees are denying the witness of Christ. They're going, you know, la, 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 he's not real, he's of the devil, run from him. And Jesus is going to launch six very strong, very viscerally charged rebuttals to say, no, no, I am the real thing. He's going to witness for himself, rightly so, with six rebuttals. He's wanting to snap out the crowd, snap the crowds out of living in denial. How do you go to hell? Deny Jesus. Pretend it's all not real. Ignore the truth. Skip church. Just go AWOL on God and you will harden up. You're divisive. Now you're, that's aggressive. Now you're going to be passive with yourself. And Jesus wants to snap everyone out of that. How does he do that? Six denials, six rebuttals. The first is simply this. It's illogical. It's illogical to believe that what he did was of the devil. Jesus is berating the Pharisees for being divisive. Jesus is saying, don't underestimate the power of Satan, but don't underestimate the dominance of himself. First of all, it's illogical. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. It's illogical. The old adage, united we stand, what? Divided we fall. If you're divided, it's a house of cards. And Jesus is saying to make this accusation means that I'm working from the inside against the devil. I'm doing something against the devil's bidding. I'm casting out a demon on the devil's watch. And things fall in that way. You know, I've been the sad, idolatrous follower of an NFL sports team that will remain unnamed. No pun intended. And uh, I've watched them, you know, win three games and then just break my heart over and over again for years and years. And um, what's sad is to watch uh, and predict what's going to happen over and over again. They win some games, they get some new players, things happen, our hopes get high. And then what happens is suddenly they start to lose games and they lose one after the other, like three or five in a row. And it always comes back to one thing. Is it the player talent that fell apart? Did they do bad recruiting? Are they not paying people enough? Is the weather bad? You know, what happened? It all comes back to the locker room, the locker room. The coach lost the locker room for one reason or another. Somebody is being divisive in, the, in and on the team, and it's dividing the trust, and it's falling apart. That's what happens. That's what happens in churches. But what Jesus is saying is, I'm not 
I'm not working with Satan and working divisively on the inside against Satan. We are of two different kingdoms. Well, secondly, not only is it illogical, it's implausible that he would do this. Look at verse 26. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will, this, will his kingdom stand? Um, this is the idea of kind of similar to point one, but it's the idea of self-elimination. Is Satan combating himself? Satan contradicting himself? I mean, Satan, would he's too arrogant to do something like that. He wants to win. He wants to win. Actually, Jesus, by saying this, is appealing to the crowds to say, there is a difference between good and evil. Even generally, you have some moral consciousness of what is going on. If we're all on one side, there's no good and evil anymore. So if Satan is divided against Satan, what are we even talking about? And again, it's a boat that will sink. How can a kingdom like that stand? Verse 27. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Not only is it illogical, it's implausible, but it's also incompatible. It's incompatible. There's an argument against insurrection. No, Jesus is going, I didn't commit insurrection. No, Satan isn't committing self-elimination. And um, now we're talking about an inherent contradiction, an inherent contradiction. And what Jesus is doing here is he's pointing out, he's pointing out to the Pharisees their own exorcist. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. What Jesus is doing here is he's holding himself up against their sons. He's saying, I have exercised this demon out of this man by the power of the Holy Spirit. Compare that against all of your alleged exorcisms that you do. Compare the two. It's almost like comparing the power, the true, genuine power of Christ that comes through the truth of God's word against all the charlatans and shenanigans we see in hyper-charismatic movements that are playing games for money. But if we look ahead in the book of Acts, we have, I think, a pretty good example of exorcists that are just playing games, Jewish exorcists. You have Josephus back then in Jesus' time. He talks about historical examples. But let's look at the sons of Sceva. Acts 19.11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, touched his skin, where those who touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And then some of the itinerant Jewish exor- exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had the evil spirits. So these itinerant Jewish exorcists were saying, we're going to use the magic word. We're going to abracadabra this moment and say, Jesus come out in the name of Jesus, come out. And they were doing this and they were messing with devils to their own peril. They invoked the name of Jesus. What happens? They're saying, I adjure you, verse 13, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I mean, if it wasn't so horrible, it would be funny, right? People are messing with, they're playing with fire. They're going against these demons and they're mastered. 
And Jesus is going, is that what you're saying I was doing? Is that who you think I am? You think I'm just empowered by the devil to do magic? Is that what you're thinking? No, it's ridiculous. It's incompatible. These things don't fit together. And then fourthly, incongruent. Now, in verse 28, Jesus is moving from a negative argument to a positive argument. He's saying, I can't be like Satan because it would implode. It's incompatible. It's not going to work. It's illogical. It's implausible. Everything's going to fall apart. Now, in verse 28, he's saying it's incongruent, but he's using a positive argument. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I mean, the thing that you have feared the worst has come upon you. If this is legitimate, if I'm really empowered by the Holy Spirit, then I'm really here as Messiah and I really am your accountability. This is the opposite of living in denial. You're saying Jesus is real, his lordship is real, his laser beam eyes see into my soul and know exactly where I am and where I am not. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying it's either real or it's not. He's exposing their deepest fear. Accountability has come. Cultures deny the living Lord Jesus, but God is here. Point five, his fifth rebuttal. It's ineffective. Verse 29. If this wasn't by the power of the Holy Spirit, then verse 29 would not have happened. Look at verse 29. He says, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. What Jesus is not doing is he's not endorsing breaking and entering. <laughs> he's, I know, that's pretty obvious, right? He's not endorsing um, binding the strong man or, or tying somebody up and stealing, um, stealing someone's goods. But he is making a strong, striking parabolic example of the fact that what he did was tantamount to or likened to going into somebody's house, taking charge, tying up the man of the house and taking all the stuff. The house is the the man's body that Jesus went in and took that demon and bound him just like Satan will one day be bound. He bound that demon, excised him out of that man's body and delivered him. How violent is it when people come to your house and threaten your, your home life and your well-being? Think of the Supreme Court justices that have been threatened by protesters. How, how scary is that? I remember when I was uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas with my wife, we were you know, new parents and we had three little kids upstairs asleep and we had, built, we had, had this house built and downstairs, um, you know, we didn't have enough money for blinds yet. So downstairs still had stickers on the windows and looked un, you know, it didn't look vacated. And so we're upstairs, everybody's sleeping and we're in our new house. And and at midnight, the doorbell rings, ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. About the first, the fifth ring, I'm like flying. I'm in mid flight down the stairs, you know, at the door. And um, at least I wasn't hiding under the bed, I guess. But, um, I, you know, I'm screaming at the door, get away from the door. I mean, you know, it could be somebody from the church. It could be anything else. Get away, you know. And so, um, I, you know, I thought it was an intruder. I thought it was what actually was happening. Somebody was testing us out. Uh, you know, the, the bad thing is, is when somebody's at the front door, usually somebody's what? At the back door. So I didn't even think of that. But I looked and I saw the person peeking in, you know, through the glass beside the door and thought I recognized the face and it's midnight. I'm thinking, oh, it's a crisis. You know, this is a, 
marriage um, counseling thing where I've ministered to them and it's the woman. It looked like the woman's face. And I'm like, okay. And Judy's kind of coming down in a bathrobe and whatever. And, you know, and I'm like, all right, you can just handle that. And I'm going upstairs, you know, to bed. Uh, and, and it wasn't that person. Judy opens the door and it's this person who's drugged out of her mind, dreadlocks and the whole thing, you know, and it just, just, you know, formidable. And she, Judy's like, no, and shuts the door and locks it. And then I'm right there with her and we're shouting, you need to leave. You need to leave right now. And, uh, cause she was trying to see if we were vulnerable or not asking us questions and things leave. So she leaves and about an hour later, the ice maker or something went bump in the night and I was up and I'm looking out the window and I saw her with her cell phone light casing the house that was kind of embedded in the woods across the street, looking around at the glass or looking through the windows. So I call the cops and on dispatch, we together, you know, we righted wrong. And, um, you know, the cops came and she had hidden the shadows and I'm pointing her out and dispatch is going, stay in your house. And I didn't. But anyway, it was it was a scene. And, uh, and she was taken away. But um, I just say all that to, to say that what Jesus did was very, very powerful. And we need to be careful not to harden our hearts. So we need to be careful not to exempt ourselves to believing that, that we're in charge of our own lives. And, you know, I mean, we're responsible for ourselves. But the Lord is sovereign. The Lord is the indomitable warrior who is, who is the king of kings and he's the Lord over all things. And there, this is, there is this devil who is out there who is trying to blind, who is succeeding in blinding the minds of unbelievers. And we are resisting him even though we're saved from ultimate death in hell. We have to be saved from being sidelined. We want to be useful and, and avoid his schemes and be aware of things. But for you who are struggling with where you are spiritually, perhaps you are being led astray. Perhaps you're being divisive and you don't even know that. Or you're, you're denying the Lord's accountability. This, this is a slippery slope you don't want to end up going down. And verse 30 gives the sixth rebuttal, which is, a, which is a very strong warning. It says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. I mean, it's unbelievable. What a strong warning. That's leading into verse 31 and 32. It's talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's talking in terms of ultimate realities. You're either on team Jesus or you're on team Pharisees. I mean, I hate to make it trivial like that, but it's to simplify it. You're in one kingdom or the other. You're either with Christ or you're following Satan as a worshiper of the devil. You're someone who is with me, Jesus says, or against me, verse 30. Whoever does not gather, you're either gathering people into the kingdom or you're scattering people from the kingdom. You're either a gatherer crowds or you're like the Pharisees who are the scatterers. That's it. That's what we're talking about. Either uniting people or you're dividing people. Next week, we're going to return to our original question. What does it look like to step towards the unpardonable sin? Lead others astray by dividing others from Christ. Live in denial, denying the witness of Christ. Thirdly, you just let yourself go. You just let yourself go and be damned into hell. And that's what we're going to explore next week.